Welcome to the Flawed, Foolish and Fantastic Podcast. Right, we're here today for another episode of the Flawed, Foolish and Fantastic Podcast. Uh, today our guest with us is Benji Jumpjeet Kaur. Thank you for being on this podcast. I just want to um, relate that the Flawed, Foolish and Podcast is I'm Flawed, Foolish is sat over there trying to figure out what is going on over with the mics. <laughs> and you are the fantastic. And what we're doing is, is to shed light on the fantastic work that people are carrying out within the community, within the seal that they're doing, within the work that they're doing. And to make others aware of that work going on so they can reach out um, and, and come and contact you uh, either to um, learn from yourself or to be part of that seal that's going on. So, And you have lots and lots of things going on. And I think it's... I think it's right, especially you've just got another award for for your yoga again in, in Leicester. So it's quite right that we shed some light on the work that you do and shed some light on who you are as well. And I think it would be good for uh, the greater audience to to understand who is behind all the work that's taking place. So for a start, thank you for being on. Thank you for having me. Th- thank you for being on, on camera, even though you, you're not comfortable with it. And I'm sure you're sitting here going, I don't want to be here. Um, but... We're not leaving until this is filmed. <laughs> so, no, I just want to say thank you very much. If you're happy, can we get started? We're right yeah, now? absolutely. The first question is the same open for everybody else. It's probably the most difficult question for everybody. But who is Jopju Kaur? That can cover a whole lot, can't it? Yeah. Um, gosh, so I am originally from Belgium, which will explain the accent. People always try to, <laughs> to figure out where I'm from and come up with Canada often. Um, but yeah, Belgium. Um, I moved to the UK about 11 years ago. Um, and that was because I had to find a new place to go. Um, as I had come into Sikhi, started wearing at a star, I couldn't stay in Belgium. Um, I don't know if people know, but in Europe, um, things were or are quite difficult for Sikhs um, in several countries. And so at the time when I was coming into Sikhi, um, there was just a ban on religious symbols that was geared towards Muslims mostly, but yeah. any other faith would fall under that. And so I had um, just at that time started wearing a star for about a year. Um, and so I had to find a country where it was easier to live as a Sikh. Um, and so I was born basically um, as Nila Bemo, different mm-hmm. name. Um, people often ask me, like, were you born a Sikh? Um, no, I wasn't born in a Sikh family. I was born in a typical Belgian middle-class family um, with grandparents being Catholic, but parents being atheist, which is a typical... Yeah, yeah, it's um, a yeah um, very normal thing. Um, I was quite... My mum would always say that she was expecting me to become a nun. Okay. Because I was the only one in the family who was on the more religious side of things, let's say. Um, I would go to church as the only one in my family. Yeah. Um, I would be doing my prayers. Um, and I remember as a young child having ongoing conversations with what you can term God, if you want. Yeah. Um, and that was up until about my teenage years. So I was a bit the odd one out in my in my small family. I have a brother. Um and that really changed when I had um, some deaths in my near friend circle and family when I was about 14. And I couldn't get any answers 
within the faith and from people around me on on death i had a lot of questions about death at that point and i couldn't get any answers that actually made sense and so that's when i completely left any faith at that point and would have i I would qualify myself then as an atheist as well um and so from that background i navigated my teenage years which were quite difficult as for most teenagers i think um with a fascination for death in many ways Um, not always a healthy one necessarily, um, but too many questions around it. Um, I grew up in a small village um, and I was dying to leave that village. It, I found it oppressive as anything. I was counting the days until I would turn 18 and could go to university and live in a bigger city. Okay. Um, and so I then went to Leuven, um, the oldest university in Europe, um, as it's called, um, where I would start studying literary studies Okay. Which was, again, an odd switch of things because I was kind of prepared to start studying mathematics, um, but it was something I didn't want to do. Um, and so I started li- started studying literary studies, studies and languages, um, doing really well and just simply following the expectations of everyone around me. Um, I would have the highest grades always in, um, in all of my exams. And so the... The expectation was that I would continue academically. Okay. So when I finished my master's, um, I started a PhD um, in literary studies in 19th century Belgian literature. So kind of how does literature shape a growing nation state? Think of Belgian independence, 1830s, this country which had always been part of bigger, yeah, bigger nations or bigger states. and. Yeah. It didn't have its own history as a country and didn't have a valid reason to be a country as such, as in it was always a part of bigger states. And so literature was then used as, um, as a way in, in, in which that small lap of land was given a history as its own being yeah. um, as such. And so that was my research. Um, and then I worked in academia for um, for just over a decade, um, roughly. And it was really because that was the expectation. I wasn't bitten by the topic at yeah. all, but it was simply that was a topic for which there would be funding. So you kind of roll into it. My whole life was really rolling into the typical expectations and having a lot of other people kind of deciding what, which way I would be turning into. Yeah. Um, Pretty much probably in a way to to please the parents and the family. I, I think a typical upbringing for a lot of people in that sense. Um, until um, shifts started taking place that, that were, let's say, not within the realm of expectations of anyone anymore, um, which is yeah. where I then turned out, basically, yes. So when I was in my 20s, I'd finished my PhD, I was um, continuing my academic career um, because I stayed on for a couple of postgraduates, um, postdocs. Um, I taught in Philadelphia as well at the University of Penn where I had a chair for a while. Um, but shifts started taking place through um, yoga having appeared in my life and through yoga really quickly Sikhi having made its entrance there um shall i continue just like that or do you want to ask your questions 
I'll allow you to go with the flow of how you yeah. want to. This is, this is you. It's about you. Um, so after I had finished my PhD, I think, it, was it in the process of... It was, it was continuing in the process of me finishing my PhD and starting my postdocs. Um, because a typical career at university is you finish a PhD and now you get funding for another three yeah, years or another year. And, and so life continues in small segments of a little bit of funding here, a little bit of funding there. Okay, I've got another three-year job. I've got another three-year job. I might have to move to a different university. Just for a ten year, just another ten years. Exactly, on. and so you continue like that on and on. Um, but I was massively struggling throughout this whole time since my early teenage years with migraines, really mm. badly struggling, um, to the point that I'd be out two days a week at least, yeah. um, either lying in a dark room yeah, or in bed, uh, sorry, in a dark room in bed or in hospital. Um, and I had um, several doctors tell me not to continue my academic studies, not to continue my PhD, that it was too much. I'm a very stubborn person, so if you tell me not to do something, yeah, I'll definitely do that. Yeah. Um, and so it was... It was part of, oh, this is the expectation of everyone that I would do this. And it was a large part also, I'll show you that I can do this with these migraines. Yeah. Um, but the migraines were actually my way into needing to really take care of myself. Because yeah. it was getting to the point, I had a bad scoliosis and still have that, that I had to lie in bed all day and type my PhD like that. Um, and so I really needed some help from my physical body. And someone started teaching yoga classes at the um, department where I was working and doing well, my it, research. So this was at Leuven University still? No, this was still in Leuven University. Okay. And so we had someone starting to teach um, Kundalini Yoga there over lunch breaks. I thought, okay, that's ideal. I just have to take the lift up to the top floor. Yeah. Um, it's in the lunch break. I would work crazy hours, yeah. way into the night. Um, but I could take half an hour or an hour there. So I kind of rolled into it that way. And I had practiced some yoga a couple of years before in my student years um, while living a very unhealthy, typical student lifestyle. Yeah. So that wasn't going to do much for me and it didn't. Yeah. Um, but by this time, um, this was Kundalini Yoga and something in that first class really impacted me. And I had this profound feeling that that's what I want to be doing, what that person sitting there, what that teacher is doing, yeah. rather than what I'm doing with my life right now. Um, and that was this flashing moment. Um, but more profoundly than that, um, there was Vahigurusimran used in that first class. Okay. Now, as maybe a background, the teacher I had at that point, she was just a um, Belgian, she was a top model um, from New York, returned to Belgium. Um, and so she wasn't a sick and the Simran was used kind of as a background, yeah. but it was profound for me. And the next week I went back and Mulmantra was introduced. And things were happening real quick for me that I would, those whole weeks, wake up in the night and 
I would wake up from doing Simran or from doing Mulmant, and I didn't know anything. Belgium, small country, very small Sikh communities. Yeah, so um, I had never met a Sikh in my life. I hadn't heard about Sikhs until this point. Okay. So I start Googling Mul Mantra, and then of course you'll come across both Indian, like yeah, Hindu right. and Sikh traditions. Yeah. And I had to start just the research from, from scratch, and I had a teacher who couldn't really say much. Um, but there was so much profound stuff shifting for me. And I had only started that class because I wanted to get my migraines and my back sorted out. Yeah. I was in no way interested in anything spiritual, not from afar. I would or you'd leave for that. that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so even with my teacher not being a sick, the word God would be used yeah. in classes. And that would be me being ready to walk out of the door because I wasn't in a class to talk about God. I was there to fix my back. Yeah. Um, so that's the entry point. And within a couple of weeks, that really started shifting. And it was, it was a scary feeling of starting to um, question my own rela reality as maybe the only one that I could ever, well, maybe not, could ever have is not the way of phrasing it. Let's say I was really comfortable in the life I had. Yeah. I loved my research. My body wasn't functioning great, but hey, I took that with it. Mm. I was doing a lot of things. I was drinking, I was smoking, yeah. I was doing a whole lot of typical stuff that yeah, I wouldn't have questioned yeah. ever um, because I was a typical Westerner um, leading my own life. Um, and yet there was something kind of nagging there. Yeah. And so after six weeks, I stopped going to that class because there was too many questions in my head. Okay. And I took about two, three months to figure things out. Um, as in not consciously, but it's like, I don't want to go there anymore because I'm really not interested in all of this. I'm not interested in changing my life. I'm good where I am. Yeah. And three months later, I'm realizing I'm not good where I am. And this is something that's still, even with just six yoga classes haven't been taken mm. it's something that has touched upon drive, something drive inside and so I, I returned back and I um, from then on started seeking out kundalini yoga classes probably every day and okay. most evenings I would do two classes a day and this was still all within a non-sikh framework in a way yeah. um, but within the kundalini yoga tradition a lot of students will read Jabji Sahib. Mm -hmm. So I started listening to Jabji Sahib. And so it wasn't still as, it was still part of the yoga, but it was that part that was drawing me most or that was doing most for me. Um, so what's, can I just ask, just mm, what's the reason for doing the Jabji Sahib with the yoga? I wasn't what, questioning what it, it okay. at that point. Later I learned it was because Yogi Bhajan had introduced it like yeah, that. Okay, yeah. um, and I have by now moved far away from that part of Kundalini Yoga and I've never classified myself as a 3HO yeah. person or if someone calls me a 3HO Sikh, I get quite upset. Um, put you in a bracket. Yeah, that too. But also I think my saving grace has been moving from Belgium after a couple of years. I'll, I'll go back to that. Yeah. But... Um, to England and living amongst the Punjabi community and luckily early on in the process questioning a lot of things that were being told in the 3HO community. Yeah. But so that would that was the reason at that point. It was simply part of your morning sadhana to read Jabji Sahib, do yoga and do an hour of simran or yes. chanting.
So that's what I did. Um, and what I noticed straight away is I started being so efficient in my work because of the yoga and now having a meditation practice that where before I would be working seven days a week at crazy times and crazy hours, never taking a day off, always being involved in research. I had evenings off. I was taking weekends off, but I was, I was publishing more. Yeah. I was doing better. I was becoming a lot more successful um, with putting in less hours and like something valuable is going on here for sure. And so that led me to start doing teacher training. I actually started teaching before I had done my teacher training. Um, but so looking more into Kundalini Yoga, diving deeper into it. And let's say within a year, that had become a lot more important than my academic work. And I had started teaching classes every lunchtime at my university. So oh, cool. now I was wearing two hats. So you're teaching Kundalini Yoga? So I was then teaching okay. Kundalini Yoga. Basically, um, the morning I was working, then I put on my white clothes I'd have a little conference room, yeah. have a Kundalini yoga class, put on my normal clothes again and okay. teach your research again. And so that would become the daily, um, the daily thing. Yeah. And I started noticing within myself that I really wasn't interested in the conversations about research and teaching anymore. Yeah. But all of my attention was drawn to the Kundalini yoga and the researching about Sikhi. Yeah. And I'm hoping that none of my old colleagues um, hear this, but I, I think they know anyway, because I would be questioning a lot of the conversations going on. Like, this is quite an ivory tower kind yeah. of conversation here. We travel the world for conferences and then you're in Korea speaking to five people interested in your topic. It's ridiculous. Yeah. We're absolutely just doing something ridiculous in the sense that this isn't changing lives. It's not impacting them. Things. Not at all. It's no greater reach. Yeah. But I would have that impact through the yeah. short lunchtime yoga classes because people who would come to that would come like, this is helping me for this, 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 my health, my mental health, everything was improving. And so when I would come home after work, that was the part that would give me fulfillment, Yes. not any of the other things. Yeah. The problem in an academic environment is... If you're no longer part of the bubble that makes it important, you yeah. can't function there because you have to play that game that well, we're doing role. something really important. You're a cog and you are a cog. And, and if you're no longer that cog, you're no longer needed. In exactly, that, that because process. you cannot question what you're doing there, yeah. not in a small domain such as literary studies, which yeah. has very little impact on the world. Um, and so I was becoming kind of the how do you say it in English, the pariah? Yeah. I was the one questioning everyone's existence really there, yeah. um, which didn't sit well. And yet I would get awards for my academic work because I was doing um, important research and doing well. And none of it sat really well with me anymore. The, the only reason I would use the office printer is, or was to print out um, manuals of Kundalini Yoga or research on Sikhi. And so... Yeah. I was having this second hidden life alongside everything. Mm. And so while this was all going on, um, let's say two, three months only into this journey, I booked tickets to India. Yeah. Um, I'd never been to India, but I felt drawn to go there. But it was a travel booked for about a year ahead. Okay. And so I ended up going to India, and I have to think dates, November 2019. 
Am I saying November 2009? We're 2022, oh, right, yes. November 2009. Um, flew to Delhi, got on a train to um, Amritsar Sahib. Yeah. And that was the first stop, <clears throat> basically. And so it being November, I arrived there just in time for Guru Purup, Guru Nanak Dev Ji's Guru Purup. And by this time, I was reading Japji Sahib in the morning. I was doing sermon. I was doing Mumata sermon. I had a little bit more knowledge. I was wearing a kara. I wasn't wearing a turban. Um, but I felt cool to go to Amritsar Sahib. And so I arrived there with a friend. And um, ended up staying there for a week because it was also um, just at that time, 1984. It must have been end October, beginning of November. Yeah. Um, so um, that was the commemoration, basically. Everything yeah. shut down in that week, so we couldn't travel further. Is that to do with the gem side, with the, the Delhi gem side? Isn't yes. It? Yeah, to, to do with that. Um, November. Exactly, yeah, it was a November yeah. day, so not the June dates, of course. Um, but so we are suddenly there in the midst of a lot happening yeah. for an entire week. And... When I, I had by this time not ever been in a Gurudwara Sahib. Mm. So Amritsar Sahib, Harmandar Sahib was the first Gurudwara Sahib I entered and the yeah. first time I had Darshan of Maharaj. Good start. It was a good start. Um, but as I walked down the steps yeah. going onto the Parkarma and I put my head down and I still, all of yeah, these years later, say, yeah, gets, starts I cannot explain what happened there, but mm. the only um, the only explanation I can give, or the only way I can describe it, is like I melted into something. Mm. I cried, and I didn't stop crying for two days. I mm. could not stop crying. Um, it felt like I had come home, but I'd never met a sick. I'd mm. only seen some yogis who were not sikhs. I'd never seen anyone with a turban. Yeah. And yet it felt like I'd come home. Um, it was very overwhelming. It yeah. was very emotional. I didn't want to leave anymore. And so I was incredibly glad that there were no trains. There were no... We couldn't move for a week yeah, from yeah. there anyway. So Maharaj kept us there. Um, and all I wanted to do was just be on the karma. Um, and there was a lot of distraction because 2009, not so many Westerners were coming, so everybody wanted a picture, and I felt yeah. I was constantly getting disturbed. Um, yet there was this this feeling of, I need to figure out what this is. Mm. I have no idea what this is, but I need to figure it out. Um, and so this was before the whole surrounding streets were redone, right? Yeah. Um, and so I had this... this the words I've used to describe how it felt was... Someone gave me something to drink and I didn't even know I was thirsty. Mm. Because up until that time, even though I had started doing Japji Saba, Mulmanta um, Simran and Waiguru Simran, I didn't believe in reincarnation. Yeah. I was still uncomfortable with the whole God idea. Yeah. And so a conversation about God was still not a comfortable one for me to have because I'd gone so long, since 14 years old, basically. Um, and yet something there was so profound. And the friend I'd gone with um, was on this whole search, spiritual search for his whole life and never really found where he belonged, mm. um, was exploring Buddhism, was, in, was exploring Taoism, 
And when I had that moment of putting my head down and lifting it back up with tears flowing, he simply said, you've come home. You weren't even searching and you're just told this is where you belong. Like that's so precious um, to not have to go through the endless search. And as we walked out on that first day again, uh, out of Harman um, you had all these little shops now, they're the nice yeah, yeah, you had all these little yeah. bookshops and everything. And so I went in into one bookshop. Um, actually, this is funny, I wasn't yet wearing a kara. I was wearing what we call in Belgium a slave bracelet, okay. which is basically a kara in silver, and you're never supposed to take it off. <clears throat> And I was never really told much about it, but it was given to me by, by my grandfather mm-hmm. um, on the day I was born. And they were just given bigger one as I would grow up. Um, but I was always told, never take it off. So I had one on one hand and I never took it off. And as we went into that shop and I'd simply asked, do you have any English books on Siki? There, there was this older um, Uncle G who started speaking in Punjabi, and I couldn't understand him, obviously, but his son came to translate. And his son said that his father was saying that it was written on my forehead that I was sick of the guru. Oh. And he'd gotten every single book in English on Sikhi that he could find. Yeah. Didn't give him, sold them to me. Yeah. Um, and gave me a first kata. Okay. And it was... I don't know what would have happened if that Uncle G hadn't done that. Yeah. Um, because now I had a backpack with cages and cages of books. And so the rest of my six weeks in India were spent reading. Okay. Um, and so going to Aramandar Sahib this, this first week. And when we, um, when we left again, I immersed myself into all the reading. I switched my slave bracelet for my kara. Um, and wasn't really interested very much anymore in what else we were going to do. Um, but we ended up going to Rawal Sarsaib. Okay. We went there ultimately for my friend, um, for the Buddhist temples there. But there is a Guru yeah. Sahib, historical Guru Sahib, because Guru Gobind yeah, Guru Gobind with the snakes, yeah. Exactly. So I was blessed again to have Darshan there, mm. and so I could again um, spend some time with Maharaj, um, ask more questions. We went to Rishikesh. I hated it. We were meant to go to Banaras from there on. And I said, I don't want to go. I want to go back to Harmandar Sahib. So ultimately, we returned for another week to Harmandar Sahib. Um, And there was just this enormous pull inside of me. It's like, I don't want to go back to Belgium anymore. I want to stay here. Um, I want to take Amrit. Okay, straight away. That was... <laughs> straight away, but that's a funny story because we ended up going to Chandigarh and I, through my reading, had found out that Anandpur Sahib wasn't too far from Chandigarh. Yeah. Um, and so we found the bus station to Anandpur, well, the bus station for the bus to Anandpur Sahib in Chandigarh and I spent there waiting for a bus to come because I was going to take Amrit yeah. with a lot of ego. Like, yeah. That's what I was going, going to do. To, the bus never, the, the bus driver never arrived, so the bus never went. So Maharaj is like, hang yeah. on, you're you're way not ready for this yet. Um, but just to to indicate, so much was happening within myself over that month or six weeks there. It was, I had no explanations for it, and it was overwhelming and scary and rationally none of it made sense. Yeah, to the scientist within me especially. 
Um, but I came home after that time in India, only wanting to go back to India. Um, and I started wearing it a starter when I came back, which caused a lot of issues with family, okay. who assumed I had become a fanatic Muslim, yeah. because in Belgium, well, Turban... You've only seen Bin Laden since 2001, haven't you? Exactly. And even if you look in a Belgian dictionary, a Dutch dictionary, Turban will be described, Tulband, as headgear for Muslims. Yeah. There is no mention of Sikhs. Yeah. Um, now, I was lucky that the city I lived in actually had a neighboring city with a good Sahib in Sint-Ruiden, in okay. Belgium, which is kind of still the, the biggest community of Sikhs in Belgium. So I could start slowly going to Gurudas Sahib there. But now I'm wearing a turban and I'm going um, to university in a turban, which was quite a problematic thing in a country where you can't wear religious symbols. That yeah. whole discussion just started there. And fortunately, they had misunderstood me in my department when, after a couple of days, people started asking questions like, why are you wearing on your head what you're wearing on your head? Hmm. And so I had simply had said, um, I've become a Sikh. But the word Sikh, just as in English, yeah. also means ill okay. in Dutch. They had misunderstood and they thought I had cancer. Oh, no. And everybody left me alone for about a year, thinking we're not going to bother her about that. Like, poor thing. Until someone, after nearly a year, said, you do look really healthy. Of course I'm healthy. Why am I not healthy? <laughs> Everyone around me, all of my colleagues, dozens of them, had all assumed that you were I was... You or was yes, off. exactly. I had okay. cancer. I had no hair anymore. Um, and so Maharaj had protected me to kind of make my own way and get comfortable <clears throat> with this huge change because my parents had said, don't turn up like this at yeah. our house. So I had already left my family at that time straight away. Like, okay, if you don't want me like this, then this is what's happening for me. I can't explain it. Yeah. And many of my friends were doing the same thing. Um, there was this, because no one knows about Sikhs and Lee. Sikhi isn't a recognized religion in Belgium. No, well, it wasn't in a lot of places. For yeah, exactly. And so it's not being told about, so no one knows. Yeah. And so it was assumed that I had entered a cult. Yeah. To the point that when... So a lot of my friends were turning away. Um, my family had said, we don't want anything to do with you, um, to the point that they disowned me. Um, but luckily at work, it was still a kind of a safe place yeah. and I could continue working and finding my way with how is this moving to other things I want to do. Um, the yoga in that sense. Um, until then, they learned that I didn't have cancer and I was wearing a religious head coffer and now the whole problem really blew up. But Maharaj again provided and actually gave me a job in Philadelphia at that point. So yeah. I was able to um, go to Philadelphia for six months to teach there, a lot more um, religious freedom. And by that time, I had come to um, my first Sikh camp here, yeah. which changed everything for me. It was... Um, 2010 Sikh retreat, okay. um, which was my first time in Punjabi Sangat for a week. And it kind of felt for me like I need to move to the UK. Where was the camp? The camp at that time was in Yorkshire, in the Yorkshire okay, yeah. Dales. It was organized mainly by um, London Sangat. Yeah. This was at the time, oh gosh, um, there was just a split happening between what were the old camps 
um, that kind of finished around 2010. Very popular camps. It wasn't Seek to Inspire. The boss camps, not the boss camps. It could have been boss camps, possibly, and there was a split, I think. I mm. can't really indicate exactly. You had the but boss so, camps, you had the uh, AKJ camps. They were, yeah. in, they were in Bangor. Um, but you had the boss camps. I'm trying to think. There weren't many, really. There it was a many. first, it was called Sikh Retreat, and it was led by people like um, Rishi Pal Singh from London, um, Ramta, Ravinder Pal Singh, um, Jagdeep Kaur and Amrit Pal Singh, I think we're already there. Okay. Pal Singh from Nanakanal. Okay. So, yeah. Um, and so that was my first entry into Punjabi Sangat, and I felt at home, which I never had with the yogis. Okay. That, that just didn't fit right. So I'd become a Sikh, but I really didn't feel okay with the yoga community at all. And so I was like, I need to move to England. But it felt like a big step to do that. I didn't know anyone here either. Yeah. And so Maharaj gave me six months in America um, with a nice Sangat in Philadelphia. So I basically got a chance to live for six months with daily visits to Gurdwara Sahib Mm. um, to kind of just find my place more in how do I do this on my own, away from all my friends, away from family. Can I make this life kind of work for myself? Is Is this what is meant for me and what I want? Yeah. Um. And that was basically my end to academia, which was fantastic because it was a it was a beautiful six months that I had there, and I was I was teaching about comics and graphic novels, and it was it was the nicest teaching experience, the nicest research experience in all my years in academia. And then I returned back to Belgium, ready to leave it. Basically, okay. um, I at that point had to choose between um, applying for tenure, um, but my the start being a big problem. Yeah. Um, or finding something else. And so for me it was like I, I'm not taking off my turban. Yeah. So that means I leave then. I was basically given the choice to find something else. Yeah. Again. And I realized really quickly that wearing a turban, I can't find another job in Belgium because no employer will employ you. There yeah. was a ban on religious symbols. So um, I moved here. Um, first, given myself kind of six months. Um, I put all of my stuff in storage, thinking I might go back to Belgium. And I lived in Coventry for six months, after which I was ready to go back to Belgium. What made you? Yeah, I was about to say, what made you? I didn't really like it there. Um, And then again, I'm going to Syria to go to Damascus and then from Raqqa. That's that's what's going on there. Coventry is going to listen to this. I don't don't really care. I got the chance to move to Leicester, which was a big saving grace, because I liked it here. It felt a little bit like Leuven, okay. small university city, but Coventry feels this heavy dark cloud hanging over it. I really didn't like it. And I moved here um, ten and a half years ago to this very house, and here I still am. So this was your first place? This at your... was my first place in Leicester. I remember meeting you at Bob Tarkas Singh's bar scene, Willenhall. That was the first time I met you. You were you were Pav at the time. Oh yes, that's that's several years ago. That's when I met you. So that's when I first remember you being here. Yeah, yeah, I've been here for a good ten years, and it was never the idea or the aim to um, do what I do now full time. I thought I would find a job here. I didn't really want to look in academia, although I did. I was looking for librarian jobs because. 
obviously with all the work experience and my PhD, um, it would make more sense to find a job like that. But I was looking for anything, jobs as baristas, that you yeah. name it, I was looking for it, editor jobs. Um, I've done a lot of editing, um, like I've, I've, I've written several books and articles and edited many um, in my academic years. And I thought that would just be what I would be doing and yeah. I'd just have a yoga class here and there. Um, after six months in Coventry, I realized I'm not even getting a single interview. And I was getting quite depressed about that Yeah. until my own teacher said, well, there's probably a reason for that, given that you're teaching more than just the one class. And I was traveling back to Belgium every six, every four to six weeks at that time to teach um, intensive yoga courses. Okay. So three days, I'm going to fail out to late evening mm. Um back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he simply said, where would you fit in a job, if I may ask? Yeah, exactly. And in my head, it's like, well, I'm just filling the time until I find a job. He's like, well, what if you have a job? What if this is what you're going to be doing? Um, and so from there on, I started just studying a lot more um, and, and, and taking on new things. So yeah. apart from yoga, I started studying Ayurveda. Mm. Um, I started over the years working with massage. So I studied massage. Um, I started studying um, Chinese five, five element theory and the meridian system, um, yin yoga, uh, postpartum work, doula work, um, closing the bones. And so new things kept, kept being added onto that. Um, I started studying functional medicine, so that with the Ayurveda and um, Chinese um, five element theory and functional medicine meant I started doing a lot of health coaching. Yeah. And so it became a way of serving people who would come to me, not just through the yoga, but in many other ways. Um, and one thing would simply always lead to the next. I didn't have a plan of, I want to add all of this to what I'm doing. It would just always be, it would always be led really by a question of someone coming to me and yeah. me wondering, is there another way in which I could serve this person? Um, surely there must be something else apart from what I can already offer them. Um, or there would be a point that they'd have a question or we wouldn't get where I needed to, where I wanted to get with them in in helping them to heal. It's like, okay, but this is in another area. And so things would get added onto it. Um, and I'm guessing we'll still... As I go on. But that would always be the drive. It would be questions from people. Yeah. Um, it's like, oh, let me look into that. Hmm. And me looking into something would mean I'm diving into it. Yeah. Um, it's kind of my character. It was how I did my PhD. I got facet... My PhD was about 19th century Belgian literature um, and the first novels in Belgium. But I got fascinated by, okay, the first novels in Belgium, but where does the novel come from? And everybody says, Walter Scott, so you end up in England. Mm. But then I found you have all of these Greek novels yeah. of 2,000 years ago. And so a gigantic part of, which I, of my PhD no, no. actually was about that. For an entire yeah. year, I lost myself in the study of Greek novels, yeah. which had nothing to do with what I was doing, but I, I lost myself. So you're looking it. at like the Iliad and things like that. So that Sorry? Like the Iliad and things like that. Those yes, um, even actually earlier than that. Because they turn around and go, those are epics, these aren't novels. And yes, that's but there is actually very, very unknown yeah. Greek novels, like he heroic novels. Yeah. 
um, which set the genre for what you then find in the 19th, 19th century. And I was just fascinated by it. And rather than spending a week on it, I had lost a whole year of myself on it. But that's how it set the pace for me to do other things. I might find something that's barely on the fringes of what I do mm. by the looks of it, but suddenly it becomes this whole other area where actually it becomes really enriching for myself and for my work. Um, I can go off on a tangent with with my interests, but yes. it always just broadens it, um, which is an interesting thing. I've had other people say, no, you just need to focus more and more deeply go into one niche. No. Like, what is your niche? I don't have a niche. No. I have a very broad spectrum because for me, it feels that I can serve people better through the broader spectrum um, rather than the pure niche of things. Anyway, um, But so that's where I ended up where I am now. With a long story. <laughs> no, that's fine. I'm going to ask you a couple of bits about those mm. stories, if that's all right. First is, you're, um, you've talked about, obviously, growing up in a family that was started off as Roman Catholic, then a bit more atheist, and you had this pull towards religious teachings as a kid as going to church, and obviously the concept of death. What was it that pulled you towards that when your other family members weren't interested at all? No, it's, no idea. It just... Are there any parts of that life, you going to the church or anything like that, that still stick with you and you provide you with teachings or solace to this day? Or? Um, I think it was this ongoing conversation, hmm. which felt really individual, just between me and yeah. what I would now refer to as Maharaj, yeah. or then with the word God. Um, and where I was pretty comfortable not doing what the rest of my family did yeah. um, and not having an issue with that, not being... My, my parents actually got um, themselves unregistered from the um, baptism yeah. register. Yeah. Um, but there was this huge freedom left for me to do what I want to do. Um, they were okay with me being weird in their eyes yeah. and so I, I went to catholic school and my brother didn't because yeah. he had zero interest but that was okay um i think it was really that and and what felt like a very individual connection yeah which i think through the yoga probably got the fact that it was through maybe the yoga side of things that maharaj pulled me in yeah also meant that I wasn't coming through the religious door necessarily yeah. into Sikhi. Um, and that... Would you say I'll, you were more focused on, rather than an organised religion, you were looking at more of a spiritual... Yeah, it was for sure. It more of a spiritual thing. Yeah. To, um, and I find that with a lot of people, it's like, I'm not interested in finding an organised religion. But there is something deep within me that has a tendency or a pull towards... There is this something out there. Yes. And I get that from a lot of people. And the strange thing, though, is because as I was coming into Sikhi, mm. I had a lot of Sangat in London, and at that point that resonated with me. Yeah. And the London Sangat will always say, never move to Birmingham or the Midlands because everybody there is so fanatic about yeah, this. Yeah. And yet I end up here, mm. and it suits me much better. Yeah. Um, but it was a journey to take. Mm. 10 years ago, 11 years ago, as I was coming into Sikhi, I couldn't see myself having a strict dad. Yeah. 
because I had left organized religion when I was 14 because yeah. that didn't resonate with me. And yet... You've basically gone from... You've come out of a box, been free, and now all of a sudden you put yourself back you, in a box. Yes. And, and it felt good to find that box again. Yeah. Because it... Without the box, it's too much free flow, and it's what I see everywhere around me, and with a lot of my students as well. It's mm. this rejection of anything. Yeah. I don't think that's going to get you very far, necessarily. Yeah. Um, and funnily enough, I married on someone who was, who was very, very strict in his head. Mm. And, and that was my journey to take, but I had to go through that rejection yeah. of things to come back to it and accept it. Well, but if you, you ask... don't know what you've lost, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Uh, yes. I always find that. Well, I think with a lot of people, you initially you you see a piece of you see a valuable jewel as a piece of glass, and it's only until you've lost that and you realise actually that's what the value was, and you come back. You yeah. don't know what it is initially. We take things for granted. And you start understanding it in, in much more of a different way, as in, this is not a bunch of rules to knock me over the head with mm. and keep me in check. It is so that I can progress. Yeah. And it is so that I can um, go deeper within myself and to protect me, basically. Yeah. That red is something that Guru Sahib gives me to protect me from a lot of outside stuff that I had gotten lost in for many years as well, um, and which is very easy to stay lost in. Mm. Um, but so it's been a very interesting journey to make um, in that sense and always alongside the journey Maharaj takes me exactly where I where I say a couple of years before that I'll never do that yeah. so no I'll never move to the Midlands six months later I'm in the Midlands um, I'll never get married to some of, someone from India mm. Well, we'll get you married to someone from India. Yeah. We'll give you pretty much an arranged marriage. You're going to get married to someone you don't know. Yeah. And so all of these things that I'm saying I'll never do, okay, let's break that bit of ego right there and then for you. Yeah. Um, and it makes it very interesting to move on like that. Um, but it's been such a... It's been such a it's been such a gift to come to Punjabi Sangha to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can I ask you a silly question? Mm. What is a slave bracelet? See, I have them somewhere else still, but I don't no, know but, where. So yeah. it's seen as um, it's seen as a handcuff. Okay, yeah. Well, which is like what a is, basically. Literally. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know anyone else who wore one. Okay. But my grandfather... He was my mother's father. Um, made my mother basically swear that she won't take it off for anything, to the point that if I would have to have surgery, I couldn't take it off. Okay, so it's the same concept. Exactly, yeah. And I wonder, like Maharaj was there from the very start. My grandfather died before um, I came into Sikhi, so I was never able to actually ask more information. And my parents yeah. didn't know much more themselves other than this was told for you to wear. Yeah. And interesting, like my Western name is Nila, which is yeah. quite close to Nila. Nila yeah. So I have this feeling that Maharaj has been there from the very start, kind of watching yeah. over. Um, but I just needed to have a lot of karam to be cleared no, somewhere that's, else that's, first. And uh, this was the journey into I have that, I remember having this conversation with Dilat, and Dilat used to say the same journey. He said the same. He's like, I was basically a seat before I knew it was a seat because yeah. I woke up in a household that woke up early. We didn't cut our hair. We didn't eat meat. It's like, I didn't know these yeah. concepts. He goes, 
you just don't know sometimes. But yeah, no, I've never heard of that. So I might have to start digging that up on the internet just to have a look. What, I can. A I might still have them somewhere because I wouldn't. They're probably upstairs. I can show you later. I think. No, I think fine. I have them all here. No, that would be great. Right, you've spoke about your your childhood and your past, and I want, I'm, don't really want to write more on that. I think you're happy to cover that. But one thing I want to ask you, you've gone through education, but your influences. You've mentioned all of a sudden you've gone from not being very well to start taking up yoga. Um, and obviously, what was that influence like? What was that teacher like, your first teacher who starts teaching you bits, and how did that influence you into starting moving into this path of yoga mm. and Sikhi? Um A lot of it in the beginning wasn't doesn't feel that it came from the people necessarily around me. It was really Maharaj. Yeah. Um, because I didn't really spiritually connect to my first yoga teacher. Yeah. Um, I had... As, as I said, I was I was studying with a few teachers because I wanted to have classes every day of the week. Yeah. Um, it was possibly when I started doing my teacher training that things shifted a bit. And yet I had a very uncomfortable and definitely not a I am inspired by you relationship with that teacher of my first teacher training in yoga, um, who was an American Um Yogi, yeah. um, using the name Singh, but not keeping Kesh and not keeping Red and not keeping yeah. Gagar. Um, and so it was the, it was the very appropriated form of Sikhi and the very, yeah. like, the 3 H version, let's say. Um, but that was the only one I think that he knew, probably. Yeah. But I wasn't inspired there, and yet that was a profound year of studying for me because I felt I could really confront certain things within me simply because I couldn't, because I didn't like him. I didn't need to please this person. Okay. As I mentioned, I chose my career to please people around me, yeah. my professors, my parents. And here was this teacher that I didn't feel like pleasing at all. Mm. And that suddenly opened up a door within me to stop pleasing anyone around me, mm. to be comfortable with starting to think of a very different path in life and basically saying, you don't like it? That's fine. Hmm. Even to my parents um, disowning me and me saying, I don't need to please you on this one anymore. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, I think that was a big influence. Okay. Not That's, not a, spiritual, actual, that's a spiritual not, influence, yeah. but not a not, coming into Sikhi influence yeah. necessarily. It's but not that, a, was that, a, that individual wasn't a, an influence as in pushing you towards yoga, it was just... No. no that's right. And he was the first one to say to me, um, your parents are only your karmic parents. Mm. Yeah. You're just born there because you have cut them with these people. That does not mean... It doesn't mean disrespect them, but it doesn't mean live your whole life pleasing them. Yeah. Gurbani says, Katanchamata, Katanchpita, which says, who is your mother? Who is your father? Exactly. Because we're, they're temporary, aren't they? And in that sense, I think my parents ultimately ended up having a huge influence on me in these years where I wasn't welcome at home at all anymore mm. because I was very free to make my own decisions. Yeah. 
which if I had been in a comfortable place with my family would have been so much harder mm. to leave a country, leave a job, um, do leave a good job. Ultimately, mm. anybody would sign up for a job like that, understanding yeah. or the status that comes with it. And here is me packing suitcases, moving to England with two suitcases to Coventry, literally not knowing what I'm doing. I've got nothing waiting for me. Yeah. Um, but it was, well, everybody's rejected what I'm doing. So fine, it gives me an enormous amount of freedom and still does. Like that's been the last 11 years. I've been able to just follow what Maharaj has led out mm. or laid out for me um, and do purely that, um, which is a fantastic position to be in. And I think if I'd be born into a Punjabi family, I think the chances would have been smaller of doing of exactly that because it's not culturally accepted to do no. that. Um might be in a generation or two, but not yet. Still exactly. Isn't. Still isn't. Um, so I've actually said to my mum at some point through this journey, like, I'm actually really grateful yeah. for your stance on this because it's given me the opportunity to just do what to I want to do. To grow as a person as well, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Without needing anyone's yeah. validation on it. Um, doesn't matter. Um, and so, yes, it makes you lonely and it's led to a position where... I've been married for over six years and my husband has never spoken to my family even or met them. Yeah. Um, but it leaves us free also. Yeah. So you've got these positives, positives and negatives there. Um, I think it was only when I moved to Philadelphia and then when I came here, like that first sick retreat was really mm. crucial for me to find inspiration and to find influences. And they have come always from a Punjabi Sikh community. Okay, so that's um, where your influences are from. I, th I think so. Apart from, as I've framed these other ones that you maybe wouldn't directly call influences, but, yeah. but they had a really forming aspect for me. Um, yeah, so you've had pivotal moments, with, yeah. like you said, but the Sikh community when you actually met the Punjabi community. The, the earlier pivotal moments were more like not like this, yeah. rather than Do, like this. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, and I think it was by meeting um, Sapal Singh at that, um, first from retreat from Nanak yeah. um, that it was like, oh, this is someone who thinks very much like I think. Yeah. Um, how I've been allowed to start thinking from a yogic perspective, but now link it and bring it to Sikhi. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where a lot more was, a whole new door was opened for me um, and where I where I then started finding my own influences. Um, but it, it has always felt like a bit of a battle because I'm a yoga teacher and because I teach Kundalini Yoga and yet I completely do not resonate with the vast majority of the yoga community. Um, it's always been the being the odd one out yeah. um, there. But I guess that's just simply the position that Maharaj has liked to put me in. Because even in a Punjabi community, I'm, I'm white. So yeah, I'm yeah. still the odd there's one a, out there. Like, there. And I don't see myself as white, which is funny. Because when someone then says the Gaudian, I'm like, oh, 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 oh yeah, that's yeah. me then. Um, <laughs> we have often called me the reverse coconut because okay. I really do not feel white yeah, but you've, or Western. What you and yet felt I'm, is I an am. influence. Right. It's like you said, when you got to the Raja, it was like you come home. 
Yeah, You've always been there, you just didn't realise it. They've That's always like, come straight from Maharaj in yeah. that sense. Um, and Maharaj is giving me beautiful Sangat along the way. Yeah. And Sangat that I would have bad experiences with as well, yeah. which was useful to also make me see, hey, this is not different from any other community. Yeah. There is good and bad here. Of course. It's not because someone wears a turban and has a beautiful dari that they're necessarily the next sant. Yeah. And it was very useful for me to be put in those positions as well early on. I've had a couple of really... You realise blind faith. It yeah. It doesn't exist. I came, I came in, I think, with probably... Um, thinking that everyone with a Dastar and a Dari is a saint. Yeah. And Maharaj really pulling that yeah, um, illusion away from yeah. me very, very quickly. Yeah. Um, and possibly just throwing me back, oh, what's my feeling about someone? Which is something that through my meditation practice and yoga, I try to cultivate anyway. Yeah. And to trust that. Not... not not the titles behind someone's yeah. name, or not what social media thinks, or not what the vast majority might think, but how does something resonate with me? Okay, well, I'll seek out those people. Yeah. Um, and to just trust that. It doesn't matter what other people tend to say, just trust how it feels for you. And I had to learn to do that. Um, yeah. Um, with regards to coming into yoga, mm. obviously that was the first thing. Have you had any influential teachers during your time? Who, because obviously you've the amount of different types of yoga you've mentioned that you've learnt as well, and the, and the different aspects of yoga. Because um, the other question I'm going to ask you is, what is three HO Sikhi? You've mentioned it. I, for us, I ain't got a clue. I just know that three HO exists, but I don't really know what differentiates it from anything else or whatnot. I just know that they're more into their yoga than. Than anything else. Um, I would always get the question at Sikh camps, at Sikh retreats, so like any any Punjabi Sikh Sangha that I would come mm. into, as in, are you a 3HO Sikh then? It's like, no. The reason I would say no, or what I've seen around me is Yogi Bhajan created something that suited his agenda very well. Yeah, yeah. Um, took aspects yeah. of Sikhi, slotted them in into other things, yeah. pulled in a lot of other things. Yeah. Um, it's a hybrid, with very hybrid little, of concepts, isn't it? Very, very. Okay, which makes it so that everybody can kind of enter it, yes. but which also lacks... Any respect for a good bani? Okay. To the point of you, you, you print mantra sheets and you have them on the floor and people will step on their shoes with it. And, okay. Um, to the point that at yoga festivals, they would keep Maharaj, but they would put Maharaj in a closet. Okay. Um, without any sadgar. Um, that you'd have a um, an Akantpat Sahib going on, yeah. um, but it would be... Say partly read in 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 Gurumukhi. Some people would read the English translation. Okay. People aren't asked to wash their hands. People aren't asked to wash their feet or to wear clean kapre. And so that was how I got in, okay. and it was a big shift coming into Sikhi. Yeah. So did you initially see that side? 
I saw that okay, side, and so that's how I got introduced. Okay. And so when I moved here, I had to turn a lot of switches. Yeah. So there was there was a a complete lack of sadhgar as I would now see it. Yeah. Um, and just take any freedom you want, a total, there wouldn't be a red given. Okay. Um, as in there would be <coughs> Amrit Sanchar is being held at all of the yoga festivals yeah. and everything. But ultimately, um, you do any bani that you want. And most of the yogis that I know who have taken Amrit as, as yeah. yogis would maybe do Jabji Sahib and that's about it. Yeah, okay. Um, but also wouldn't you kind of shrug things off more easily like I can I can do that it, it's not I ha I haven't surrendered myself to it I haven't yeah. it's not the concept of a guru okay. in the sense of that you put your manmat aside it is it is negotiable does that make sense? Yeah, I, I I'll what take what I want from yeah, this, from this yeah. but that but doesn't mean I'm going to leave other things aside. I'll just take what I want. But that's what we see within other groups. I don't want to be distracted. True. Such as other songs, such as things like that, where True. they come in, they, they take the concepts of Sikhi that they want. If they want to keep the case, they can. If they don't yeah. want to, they can. They can smoke, they can do whatever. They do their buying and they get given yeah. a month of, and it's it's... Like you said, there's a negotiation on what I want to do, what I don't want to do. What that is, this is what you're being told. Is this is what you're being given, and these are the codes of conduct that you are to live by from now. There's no negotiation on those. Yes, exactly, and I think that was the that was for me. If you, if you take a guru, yeah. if you take Guru Granth Sahib Ji Maharaj as your guru, if you if you beg for Amrit. You need to start negotiating how you think. You don't start negotiating with the guru. Yeah, exactly. And that's where I stood out as a sore thumb within a whole community who thinks very differently. Yeah. But who was allowed slash taught to think like that, I, th mm. I think very much by what Yogi Bhajan introduced and how the whole um, community was formed. Yeah. Um, so not necessarily through a fault of their own. Yeah, and yeah. very much shielded from... The Sikh community as well as there is there is very few interaction between those communities, no, there isn't, there isn't. Um, and obviously after um, more came out around Yogi Bhajan's conduct, yeah, yeah. you start understanding why he was shielding things so why he was shielding a yoga community so much from a Sikh community which had its big criticisms, but it would have exposed him. So it, it all makes complete sense, and it's not necessarily an individual's fault that this yeah. is what they think Sikhi is. Yeah. Maybe, if anything, it might be that we're not reaching, we as a Punjabi Sangha, we're, in, no, we're not we're reaching. Poor. We're very poor at reaching. That, that's the problem we have. But it's like, I've just, uh, like, Jagad Guru, she's passed away, and he's, he's here seeing things come out, and he's just like, I don't, for me, I'm just like, I don't see where that fits in with Sikhi. Yeah. For that, that's all, but I'm, it might be due to my misunderstanding or, or lack of knowledge on how yeah. uh, that community works. Um, it's not for me to say any further because I've never, I've never had any interactions. Personally. Everything is basically optional and negotiable, and it's a, it's a free flow. Just this whole idea of I will navigate my spiritual path how I want to navigate my spiritual path, not with the idea of somebody telling me that a I'm guru going to taking a guru means you stop doing that ultimately yeah. because now you you're just going to live. 
yeah, by Gudumat. Yeah. And and there is this complete well, that's not what I want to do, but I still want to I want to find my identity. Yeah, I understand. I want to belong somewhere. I want to belong somewhere, but I don't want to take it hundred percent. Yeah, but it's the it's the longing to belong somewhere mm. and a community giving a physical um identity that will help you belong and a sense of community to help you belong. So I'll put on a kara. Hmm. I'll put on a turban when it suits me. But I understand where the longing comes from. Yeah, yeah, and in the West, we have no other way of filling that longing. Hmm. Um, and so if someone basically said, well, you, you can pick and choose from this whole buffet, go ahead, which, what, which is what happened yeah. um, in those early years, I think, of 3HO. Um, of course that's going to happen. People will pick and choose what they want. Okay. Not understanding, I think, though, that um, it makes it exactly, in, in smaller countries like Belgium, very hard for a Punjabi Sikh community. Mm. Because now their approach, like, well, I have a yoga teacher who takes off their turban yeah. in the evening, or as in, they, they put out, it on for yeah. yoga class and then take it off. Why are you insisting that your children wear a, the start to, to school? Yeah. And that's kind of... For me, the very difficult area that you now start, it's what cultural appropriation will do to um, cultures got, of origin. We've got that in the police. I'll tell you that in the police. We've got, uh, we've got police officers in the police who wear the start, and they will wear it on duty all the time as a police officer. And then they finish work or they're out with the workmates yeah. and they're wearing a cap. Yeah. And they always say to me, it's like, why do you, why do you keep your understar all the time when these, these yeah. other cops who you all know... They take the, the stars off. Yeah. They, they don't wear their turbans in the evening. They come out with us to the pub. They do all this. And, you know, it, what it does is it makes my position very difficult. So difficult. But very for... difficult. Because they compromise themselves yeah. and ruin it for other people. And it makes it difficult on so many levels. Like, yeah. I would travel to a, to a yoga teacher training, for example, with other people. Mm. And now we're crossing border control, as in you're trying to get on the plane. Mm. Everybody's untying their turban. I'm like, I'm not doing that. Well, you yeah. can't take the plane then. Yeah. That's fine. I won't take the plane then. Yeah, yeah but your friends are doing it. It's like, yeah, no, yeah but they're, they're wearing they're... it for a different reason. Well, it looks the exact same. Yeah, exactly. Okay, how on earth do I start explaining this? Mm. Um, and so it's it's this, but I, I I know that it's that exists in the Punjabi community as well. Yeah, You'll have plenty of Punjabis massively. also taking a cut yeah. off when they need to go. Like, it's not a big deal. Well, for me, it is. I won't yeah. do that. And so it is not just a white versus Indian yeah, yeah. conversation. I totally no, no, understand. No, no. Um, what I do think is that in certain countries where it's not UK, where we do have a larger Punjabi Sikh community, where you look at European countries where it's such small yeah. communities, that ultimately it's yogis then who are holding higher positions of visibility. Yes. They will come across... They will... What they do models... An expected behavior, yeah. which makes it so hard for um, for Punjabi Sikhs trying to carve out their existence there. Yeah. So I think that's that's the bit where I've always really struggled with, and where I've had a lot of <laughs> uncomfortable discussions with people. Well, they're quite fluid in what they appear and how they yeah. act and what they do. Yeah, oh, I can understand um, that. Yeah. Have you have you had like you said? Have you had difficulties with that community? based on your ideals and based on their ideals. Yes. You have. Yeah. Constantly ongoing. I was about to say, um, does that yeah, continue today? Because you're still a yoga teacher here yeah. and you're doing a lot of work. 
I am um, I am not engaging really in the wider Kundalini yoga community. Yes. Um, I stopped going to yoga festivals about eight years ago. Um, I didn't feel comfortable being in spaces where there was no Satkara for Maharaj. Um, and where you weren't allowed to step into that space to make it sh- a change either, because it, it would feel for them as very, um, we're being put on the spot or we're being criticized, yeah. which I also understand we're doing the best we can, yeah. which is fair enough. Um, but I left a school in which I used to teach teacher training, so I haven't taught teacher trainings in many years mm. um, now, which I did um, for a long time. And I used to travel back and forth um, to Belgium. I did yeah, that for eight years. I stopped doing that because the yoga community there was growing and growing and growing in the way that I felt like ah, on my own, I, I can't... Um, I can't try and keep raising awareness. There's too... It's being flooded with something it's else. It's being diluted, isn't it? Yeah. And it would get... It would get too much to try and counter on your own. Yeah. Um, because ultimately, what it feels like is that you're... Am I doing my job of teaching yoga here? Yeah. Or what am I trying? It becomes... It becomes difficult. Um, and I would... I taught in the t- yoga teacher trainings there for a long time, hoping that I could still make a shift there yeah. until I started having really big um, confrontations with my own teacher okay. in the school that I was teaching in, um, where I was being called the fanatic um, yeah. and where I was like, you can't expect that from us. And it would be around things like, for example, celebrating Guru Purup. Yeah. The community would celebrate Guru Ramdas, she's Guru Purup. But on a fixed Western date. Yes, and literally some of the changes according to exactly. And just even having that conversation, like, hey, can if you want to work on this this connection between the two communities, you have to at least understand that there is a different calendar. Yeah. It doesn't take you much. You just upload the calendar on your phone. Easter. It is five. Easter doesn't. Easter is not a fixed date. Exactly. Even Christians are aware. Exactly. And that. Even that conversation would seen would be seen as being fanatic, okay. and so then there's me writing a three-page document about how Guru Gobind Singh Ji would give hukum nama sahib on how you would celebrate Guru Purubs, yeah. and that the Bikrami calendar was already used by Guru Sahib, yeah. and it being that completely dismissed. And for me, that that started becoming really problematic because I had felt like. I'm trying to bridge two communities as much as possible, but if one really doesn't want to play ball, yeah. then what am I trying to do here? So you're finding it toxic? Very. Okay. Um, very. Um, and it was difficult because I had a lot of respect for my teacher. Yeah, yeah. And it got to a point where I can't... I can't study with a teacher who I cannot say some bachan to. Yeah, yeah. Because it... I then have to go against my guru. Well, the, the issue you have is you you will never want to disrespect your teacher. So you'd always respect your teacher, but you realise that this teacher's taken me to a point now. And that's where I yeah. am now. And unfortunately, it's not going to go any further. Yeah. And you become to disassociate yourself with them. And, and so that... And I think other people come to that point as well. And you have your guru and then you have... 
a yeah, spiritual yeah, teacher who isn't your guru, but you've got your yeah. style exactly. But when it starts being a conflict, yeah, yeah. or it starts feeling for you like a conflict, because maybe it isn't, but yeah. that's definitely where it took me, um, and where a lot of disrespectful things were being said about Punjabi Sikhs. Yeah. Um, there is a lot of racism within the oh, yeah. white privileged 3HO community, for sure. And I, I can't do this anymore. And yeah. so I could only say, well, then I have to leave. Yes. Um, because this is a place where I have to... If I try to keep doing both parallel, I'll have to end up disrespecting either my Ustad or my Guru. And there is neither I want to do. So now I, I take a step back and, and choose one. Yeah. But not... I'm trying to do both alongside. And that's where I started um, studying yin yoga, okay. which is a different form of yoga, but which for me um, helped me mm, understand kundalini yoga from a different perspective. Okay. Um, I guess that becomes a whole different conversation, but it would, it would help me understand the practice of kundalini yoga more, which I started seriously questioning yeah. Um, and especially as more and more came out of Yogi Bhajan's yeah, yeah, was, um, bricolage yeah, yeah. of things. Um, for me, starting to study yin yoga, going back to Vedanta teachings, um, all helped me understand Kundalini yoga from a very different perspective. Yeah. Um, which was like a breath of fresh air, because I had been teaching it for many years according to this very strict framing of it. Mm. And now this whole door was opened up like, hang on, more this does make sense. Yeah. The framework just hasn't been put there for people to understand it because it had to be understood from, um, this person says it works like this, just teach it like that. Yeah. Rather than looking from Ayurveda, looking from Chinese perspective, looking from a Meridian perspective, oh, okay. This completely makes sense because this is this is how energy is moving. And so the more that you have a background around it, mm -hmm. the more you understand that this is an incredibly valid practice. Yeah. But you just have to open another door into it or um, you have to see go and go and look at it from a completely different it's perspective. The, it's the Vedanta thing of the elephant. Explain the elephant, somebody's touching the tail, somebody's touching the trunk, yes. somebody's and, and they're all talking about the same thing. Yes. That's what Gurbani says, Chekar, 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 this, Guru Guru Ekovisna. So they're all saying, they're all talking about the same thing, but the perspective is different. I'm describing it completely different, not realizing it's the yes. same thing that we're talking about. Um, and so I feel that in the past three years, it's been highly refreshing and, and much like it, it's. It's been a very refreshing way of, of opening the windows and doors and just understanding it from a dip different perspective much deeper again yeah. um and with that enjoying teaching to a whole new degree for myself again as well yeah. um yeah no that's why with regards to sikhi coming in sikhi who are your influences there because you must have had many i know you've talked about obviously the Sikh retreat camp you've talked about surpassing from Naram, but who else has there been that's helped you on your journey or provided you with insights on your journey initially it would have been the internet like you said that's yes. very different but yeah. you know but who is it that's physically coming either in india or here or anywhere i think my husband has played a big role yep. in these past years um 
What about within Sunderland here in Leicester? Are there anybody who has been pivotal or...? It's funny because there isn't necessarily a pivotal yeah. person as yeah. such. It's been really, let's say, Sangat in which I've moved. Yeah. Um, in early years, as I said, it was surpassing. Jagraj Singh and Sukhmini Kaur yeah. um, played a role in there for sure. Um, because I got to know them as I was still living in Belgium even. Yeah. So very early on, 10 years ago. Um, even before Basic Sesiki was started. Okay. Um, Baljeet Singh from Basic Sesiki played a big role for several years, actually. Okay. Um, and Indra Kaur's wife. And that was before I got married. I actually um, spent a lot of time with them. They would have me over in their house for a long time. Um, my work here wasn't as intense, so I would spend weeks sometimes on end helping them with the kids but learning a lot that way yeah um Gurpreet Kaur and Amardeep Singh Soddi okay yeah. um they are amongst our closest Sangat I would say and um conversations with them have definitely definitely always been incredibly guiding yeah um I think that might be the big ones, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that's fine. Um, I'm trying to think. Well, for a lot of the... My Punjabi isn't fluent, so I have to rely still for a large part heavily on English katas yeah, or fine. English resources. Um, books translated, edited. Um, plagiarized. I just plagiarized all people's work. <laughs> So, um, it's called Google Lens, please, you just please, translate it yourself. Please put yourself in a position there of fantastic, mm -hmm. um, and me in a position of very flawed. Um, no, these resources, um, and in that sense, people, um, don't definitely credit yourself amongst that. Um, and that wasn't, we haven't had endless conversations with each other about mm. Siki, but I know that when we have conversations, we quite quickly meet each other probably yeah. on a, on a common ground yeah, yeah. exactly um, but um, but the books that you put out for sure um, thank you I think that's probably the, the really important ones um, I have a tendency to go to a lot of camps and retreats when I can yeah. and pick up what I can there and do my seva generally through teaching yoga I'm always kind of the do some physical exercise with Benji, well, um, but there you have you have a you have a good meeting ground there yeah. always. Um, yeah. Okay, I'm going to go on to uh, rather than going on to your past, I want to go on to what you do now mm. with the work that you do. Um, like I said, you, you talk about some of the yoga and some of the practices you, that you carry out. Um, I want to go into how you started teaching. I know you said you started learning bits, learning, and you were doing bits, like you said, the three-day courses, the intensive training. Mm. How did you end up getting into Leicester and going, right, I'm going to do this now. I've come into this house. This is where I am. So when I was living in Belgium, I was yeah. already starting to teach yoga there. Yeah. And so I would teach at the at my university every lunchtime. Yeah. I would have a um, yoga studio at home, actually, and I was teaching there. 
And so when I moved to Coventry, I started teaching one or two group classes a week. But most of my teaching was in Belgium, where I would have my three-day intensives always. Finally, sorry, enough. When I moved to Leicester, I was here probably for about a week. I was in Holland and Barrett and I had someone, this is actually really hilarious. I had someone call from the other side of the shop. Are you Snatamkor? And I'm just breaking out laughing. He's like, no, I'm not. Are you Kundalini Yogi then? It's like, uh, yes, I am. I've just moved here. Are you teaching a class? I guess I am from now on then. And so basically within a week, I was teaching a first class simply because someone asked. And they brought their friends. And so I started teaching classes here in the house. A couple of classes a week. Um, Because most of my time I was traveling to teach teacher trainings. I was barely ever. I was here for three days a week pretty much. And then I would be in Belgium or elsewhere to teach. Um, and so with that, that's 11 years ago, classes have been ongoing and growing. Um, I've stopped teaching in the house. Um, yeah, because you're teaching at the centre, weren't you? I was, yeah. I was teaching at the... Yeah, I was yeah. teaching at the Foss Neighbourhood Centre for yeah. a while, at Manor House, um, all pre-COVID. Everything yeah. has been online for two yeah, years, yeah. so all of my classes have been on Zoom, and it seems everybody is incredibly comfortable there. Um, but so I had my group classes, I had private classes, I still have private classes, yeah. so I'm teaching about two, three classes a day. Yeah. Um, funnily enough, that's been through COVID, because yeah. I was doing a lot of other things apart from teaching with my work yeah. when COVID happened, and all of a sudden I couldn't do in-person work anymore, so everything got catapulted back to a whole lot of yoga teaching yeah um which had kind of it had had, my focus had gone to other things and now it came back to well that's the only thing i can do here um and it's been actually really nice because we have um group classes every day um and so with covid with it being online people can join from abroad yep People don't have to travel and park their car. People can do it even with their kids in another room. Um, And we've created a system where people can join multiple times for the price of one class, which they couldn't in a physical class. I couldn't offer that because of rent of venues and stuff. So now I have people who used to do one class a week coming four or five times a week. So everybody's been diving deep into their practice. Um, And it's actually been a great gift. Um, where we thought like how we're going to do this does this work it's actually been um, it's been pretty fantastic for a lot of people they don't want to return to in person most of my students is that a bad thing or a good thing it's weird okay. it's not necessarily a bad thing okay. um, I still have a lot of other in person things that have returned yeah, yeah. so I don't necessarily mind it's strange but I think it's something that's probably it's on all levels isn't? and it's not going to leave us anymore no. this is here to stay it's convenient it is massively convenient um i think for so many more things we probably just flip over open our laptop or put our tablet on and and that's how we live life now um and it works i didn't think it would and it's actually been you can do deep energetic work and you can do yoga online quite well that's good. Um, Some of the other things I want to talk about is you, you don't just do yoga, but no. um, one of the other things you do is um, a process called the closing of the bones. Yeah. Can you please explain that for me, please? So closing of the bones um, is a practice that used to exist across the globe. Um, many in our Sangha actually still know it. If 
people would go and ask their grandparents, it wouldn't be called closing the bones, but it would be um, the idea of massaging and wrapping a woman who's postpartum or yeah. who's had a miscarriage or lost um, a baby um, to to close the body back, but also to yeah. energetically help her find herself again. Yeah. Um, that's actually the wrong way even of saying it, to help figure out who they are after birthing a child and yeah. becoming a mother. I'm no longer the person who I was. Mm. And when I was talking to my own um, mother-in-law and my husband's grandparents, they still even know of the practices um, of wrapping and of massaging. Um, I have personally learned the practice from a tradition from Ecuador. Okay. Um, but we know that it used to exist even here in England and in Europe, but we yeah. need to go about 80 years back. In South America, it's still done up and up to this day. In Africa, it's still done. In um, in India, in the villages, it's still done. Yeah. Sri Lanka, um, Pakistan, you'll still find it. The bigger cities have lost it. Yeah, of course. Um, because they're following us. Modernized, yeah. Exactly. And basically, um, it is something that is done traditionally postpartum, but also it's mostly for women. Yeah. Um, through rites of passage, as in the menarche, yeah. um, so when a girl starts menstruating, yeah. um, when a woman comes into the menopause, when there's been trauma, so it's we use a lot yeah. for any kind of trauma, um, when there is a big change or shift happening, for example, a, um, a girl getting married and moving in with her in-laws, yeah. it's... It's such a trend. It is so so difficult for so many women to make that shift and and just fit in, yeah. which doesn't happen. But the expectation is there, so uh, we use closing the bones there. Um, but we use it for men and children when it comes to ADHD and ADD and trauma and um, autism and any sensory overwhelm so it's it's a very wide range and we use it for purely physical reasons but what it uses is i don't know if they're in camera but all the shawls behind me there um we basically massage a person with them um we rock the body we massage each body part it lengthens the fascia the connective tissue in the body um, which is the part of us where our trauma is held and where everything that's happened to us is held and which starts shortening and tightening. Mm. Um, and people will often probably have heard about it. People use foam rollers to hydrate the fascia again. Yeah. Or people know about, they might have heard about plantar fasciitis, problems with the fascia on the feet shortening and causing problems. Yeah. Um, so what po- people often see as muscle problems or... Um, oh, I've got a shoulder pain. It might be fascia in the leg that's shortened. Okay. Fascia is basically, it's the wrapping paper of, think cling film. Yeah. yeah. That cling film is around all your muscles. That cling film is around all your organs. That cling film is um, rolled up, as you, if you want to put it that way, and becomes your ligaments and becomes your tendons. And it connects everything with everything, which is why we call it connective tissue. And so what we do is we massage that and you can literally see, and this is fascinating, you can literally see someone's limbs lengthening. Like I do one leg and it's like, oh, your leg is suddenly three centimeters longer than the leg that I still have to do. Mm. Um, But we do that all around the body, which helps to hydrate fascia again, but it helps to release trauma. Um, It works with ancestral trauma. Um, which is one of the reasons that I try to bring it a lot to our community, 
I don't think people necessarily realize how much trauma is held, even in the younger generations, of separation between India and yeah. Pakistan of 1984. It's not because you haven't lived it that you don't hold the trauma, because it's passed on through the generations. Um, and so the trauma of your ancestors is passed on to you. Um, and so there's this really wide range of application which starts traditionally postpartum but is so much wider than that where we massage we do a womb massage really important if a woman is postpartum to put organs back in place um because what a baby does is they're being what i call a bad tenant they move the furniture around like they, yeah, yeah. they move organs around nothing is put back no. it's crucial that that's put back for you to function well and so when i talk to western people there is not any sense of postpartum care being important culturally still embedded Um, within an Indian community it very much is but the rationality behind might not be known anymore there is this don't leave the house for 40 days but it almost becomes like a rule rather than in those 40 days you'll be taken care of, you'll be massaged, you'll be cooked for, so that you can bond with your baby yeah, yeah. and figure out who you are. Mm. Like you're thrown into a completely different realm. For, you haven't just birthed a baby, you've birthed a new version of yourself. You need time and space to figure that and out. Everything changes to um, And obviously you will have seen that as your children mm. were born. That That's a everything profound changes. space to navigate for a woman because she really becomes someone else. Yeah. And so I work as a doula, I work through pregnancy with women, I work through birth with women, and I work postpartum with women. But with closing the bones, we take that much further as well. Um, And so we massage, but then we wrap someone. Think a... um, A mummy. I've seen 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 pictures, right? Um, I am so passionate about this. We wrap the whole body and... What happens is that as someone is wrapped, you come to this space of complete relaxation because you don't need to keep yourself together anymore. What needs to unravel can safely unravel and you can let go. And I always refer to this this as it's a cocoon, just like a butterfly, right? Um, It's this chrysalis. Who will come out will be different than the person who came in because a big transformation takes place. And what I've always seen, I would need years and years of yoga with someone to have the inner transformation take place that takes place in one closing the session. Okay. Um, and so I'm hugely passionate about it. And I, I do closing the bones work, um, have for seven years, it's... I'm stunned always by what happens there. It's literally a space of honor and privilege to see where that takes someone. But I also train people in that because I'm so passionate about it. Um, And we are trying to get more people within the Punjabi community um, or within the Sikh community um, trained in it because a Western bone closer or a Western doula especially when working with Amritari women, will not have all the necessary um, understanding of Arkakar, of what we need to feel comfortable, um, of Kesh on women, 
And so it is often a space that is more difficult to hold for someone who doesn't have that background, yeah. um, who doesn't understand the importance of us keeping our kakaros. Like when I treat someone, I obviously know if they're Amritari that they need to keep their kakaros. A Western woman wouldn't know that. And it yeah. becomes it becomes another instance again for an Amritari woman, woman to have to explain that, which she's probably had to do in her birth situation already, yeah. talking to midwives, doctors. Um, you cannot ask me to take my kirpan off. You cannot ask me to take my kashir off. Yeah. Um, I'm trying very much to reach our own community here and have women understand there is a seva for me here to do. There is a job here for me to do. Yeah. Not just as a seva, but this can become my profession where I can have um, a sensitivity. And a positive action. Where I can have a positive action. Yeah. Where I can make change. Yeah. Where I have a larger understanding of cultural sensitivities, yeah. of spiritual importances, yeah. of a religion. Um, where... When someone is wrapped up, I don't necessarily need to fill that up with, and this is what is typical, for example, in a South American tradition of um, shamanic drumming. Yeah, yeah. But that wouldn't make sense for no. a Sikh. No. But I could read part, yeah. or I could have Simran playing. Yeah. And so where, where this can go back, and where we then can start investigating, um, hey, we don't need to borrow or go back to traditions that are coming from other parts in the world, we had this. Yeah. Let me talk so to my re- own so grandmother. Rejuvenating old tradition yes. and old knowledge we've got. Which is going out of the door yeah, yeah, real quick. Well, we seem to be finding that with every part yeah. of Sikhi at point. And so I get a lot of clients saying, oh, my grandmother told me I needed to get this, and then I suddenly found you. And it, it is still odd. Also with my Ayurvedic practices in, in nutrition coaching or health coaching, that... I have to be the person with the white face bringing back those things where someone's grandmother or grandfather said. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I get so often people saying, my grandparents have been telling me so many times and I've never wanted to listen. Mm. We still live in a society where somehow it, it, it holds more value or more weight if it's a white person well, saying we, that, we, which we, really needs <clears throat> to change. Yeah, but we know that. We, we know that. We grew up in, in a society then where our parents went, you're not very well, here's some turmeric milk. Here's, you know, here's the essences of oud and things like that. And you're just like, no, 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 I don't want to. Then Gucci brings it out and you're like, right, I want some exactly. oud fragrances. And then you go to a holistic bar or, or a, uh, a, you know, a, a Starbucks and it's like, oh, turmeric lattes, oh, amazing. Yes. You're like, and, it, you know, mom was like, I've been trying to get this in you for years. What's, what's your problem? Yeah. You know, it's okay when a wine person puts it in front of you. But that's how that's how the Asian cultures become, where it's only appropriate if it's something that is consumed by white consumers. Yeah, and so what I feel that my seva is in that sense is that I help people to understanding and hang on. Let me talk to my grandparents. Yeah. I don't need to. I don't need to. I am here to offer you this but you don't need to go through your life paying me to come and tell you what you already know or what's already within your culture yeah um 
Don't let this be another thing that disempowers you. And so I originally came across Closing the Bones through a, a Southern American tradition. Yeah. But the idea is, let's hark back to what you already had. Yeah. With any community I work with, um, because way. I work with a lot of Eastern Europeans, they're still doing it. In Holland, yeah. I mean, neighboring country for Belgium, it's so part of their NHS practice to wrap around that you don't need to go very far. This used to be done traditionally. Yeah. Um, and I think so with a lot of the work that I do, I, I go back to the traditional bits. But that's, um, that's something I was going to touch on in the next thing. You, you've, you have a knowledge of Ayurvedic medicines, non-chemical based medicines and things like that. And, you, you, I've seen you do balms and fragrances and all sorts. And I know personally, I remember my mum talking to you and ask, I can't remember what she asked about, and you said, right, go to the fair trade shop, get this get this apple cider vinegar apple cider with, with, with turmeric in and yeah. this and that, try this. And, and she was so much better. She's like, why did I not know this? And I was like, well, I don't know. But, you know, we don't know these things, but the traditions that used to be within the Nirmalas and Silvapanthes of making... Uh, homeopathic medicines, which you can still find in the Meghvanoth Grant and Chattachiska Grants. I know, we have these grants right there, but no one's reading them. Um, which went to Gomarup, and Gomarup's doing all this sort of th things, looking at old Ayurvedic grants and then trying to make that sort of stuff. But we seem to have lost that sort yeah. of... You know, we're quite happy to go to a pharmacy down the road. You know, my mind started some of those things, you will make all those medicines. You know, he makes all those yeah. medicines and, and we'll take them. And, I've seen with uh, my Singh sister, she she had a gluten intolerance. She now no longer has a gluten intolerance, but sci medical science does not have a way of getting rid of a gluten intolerance because it doesn't exist. So, but Ayurvedic medicines have done that. So yeah, that's the other thing I want to ask you. How did you get involved in those sorts of things? Um, I, as I said, I had really bad migraines. Yeah. I had a bad scoliosis, and so I got to a point where I would get um, injections every month with muscle relaxers okay. and where I was given um, medicine for epileptic patients mm. to help with my migraines. Okay. The injections with muscle relaxers were very detrimental. Yeah. The medicine for um, epileptics that I was taking for my migraine um, started destroying my liver. Okay. Up until that point, I had a completely limited mindset of Western medicine only. And that was because of the family I lived yeah, in. My dad had his own pharmacy down in the basement. Bit. Okay. We had so much medicine in the house and he would simply, before I would even see a doctor, he'd be giving me like, take this, but it would always be from the pharmacy. Yeah. And I remember as a child coming back home from a doctor's visit or as a teenager's, if we weren't given antibiotics, we would be sent back or my dad would be on the phone with the GP. Why didn't you give antibiotics? Because that was the only way, the only right way of treating something, yeah. right? And even then, GP would try and explain to my dad, you can't cure everything. With... No, it does damage when you do that. Viruses that don't work, certain things. Like... Exactly. But that, that was the mindset. Um, and I lived in that um, until my liver got pretty destroyed by that and I had to do something else. And this was alongside my coming into yoga. Part of my yoga training was very much um, based on Ayurveda. Yeah. 
So I started studying Ayurveda, not to a deep, deep degree, um, but enough to be able to help myself, um, enough to start thinking differently, enough to start seeing, hang on, anything that is pharmaceutical is ultimately taking the active ingredient from a plant Mm. and mixing it with other things and now making it synthetic. The reason that it wasn't the plant in the first place surely must mean something. It it was there. It wasn't something created in a lab only. It came from the plant. And then understanding, hang on, the plant Mm. combines that active ingredient with many other things that when you take it in that way, make sure you don't get side effects. You don't need to make a synthetic version of it. The only reason to do that is to make money off of it. You can't make money off plants. You grow everywhere. But you can make money off something synthetic. How about we harken back to the the plant? Like nature, Maharaj has given us everything. Anything that comes from the plant itself has a deeper working because it makes sure that you've got everything you need alongside that particular active ingredient so that your body absorbs it better, so that you don't get side effects. The problem is it often takes a bit longer. Of course it is. And we don't have to take effects, yeah. Yeah. We want to see something work straight away. I'm ill. I don't want to take time off work to let my body get better. Yeah. I want something that I can take. In 10 minutes, I can and get back to work. Exactly. That's not how health works. Mm. Um, and it was kind of that shift, which was a really big shift for me to make because I'd never looked at health that way. Yeah. And then I started studying functional medicine, which is basically a way of looking at, um, at the entire person, like Ayurveda will also do, but looking at the entire person, so working very holistically, um, not saying no necessarily to medicines, but realizing if we need to go to medicine, it means we haven't seen the root cause of the problem yet. And so we want to dig deeper. But it's looking at what's going on emotionally for someone. It means you're having long conversations with someone. Not, it's not a 10-minute GP visit. Of course it is. It is, I'm sitting down with you for two, three hours. Mm. And I'm asking you questions about your wider health, your mental health. What's going on in your life? What are the stress factors? What's going on in your relationship? What is your... How are you feeling spiritually connected? I'm looking at all of that, which means I'm taking a lot of time with you. Um okay, we might do, we might have you have blood tests done. Um, and we try to work through supplements. We try to work through acupuncture. We try to work th- through yoga, through massage. It might be that initially you're still taking medicine, but we want to get to the point that you do not need your medicine anymore. Yeah. It's a very different way of looking. It, it's not symptom-based. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But where is this coming from? Um <laughs> and very often I have, have people here in Leicester who come, who will say to other people, go and see Japjeet. She'll figure out where it comes from. It might take me longer. So it does mean I'm not giving you a quick fix and you need to be in this yeah, for a process. Yeah. And you might need to make some very uncomfortable changes. Like I'm not going to ask you questions that mm-hmm. you don't have an answer to straight away. Yeah. I'm not giving you something that you can, you're better in a week's time. Yeah. But you weren't better in a week's time anyway. You're just covering up this symptom and it will just... It's putting a plaster over the problem. Exactly. So I work a lot, for example, with autoimmune diseases. Um, If you don't understand where an autoimmune disease is coming from, you're just going to have someone develop autoimmune disease after autoimmune disease. You're going to have five. You're going to have ten. 
it's just an illness that's not understood in the West at all, yeah. but which is very easy to understand from a functional perspective. Yeah. Um, and it's basically anything that's untreatable in the West, as yeah. in this is a... Um, you have a chronic disease. No, you don't have a chronic disease. Also, you just have someone who doesn't understand what you have treating you. You said that with like the intolerance, gluten intolerance. Exactly. You, you can't get rid of it, but we have been. Yes, of course you can. And the gluten intolerance is often at the base of any of the autoimmune diseases. But you have to, you have to ask more questions. You have to revert back and mm. back and back. And so with that comes me. Um, as I was navigating this space of I want to go back to as much plant-based, mm. literally plant-based, not just in my food, but in how I treat myself, um, but also starting to read labels yeah. of all the products I would put in your body, in my body, on my body. Yeah, yeah. What do I wash my laundry with? Yeah. What do I do my dishes with? Yeah. Read. If this is not good for aquatic life, deadly for aquatic life. <laughs> How is that going to be good for me? Yeah. Um, I'm now at a point, if I wouldn't put it on my body, yeah. sorry, if I wouldn't put it in my body, I'm not no, putting it on, on my body. body. So yeah, what about all my skincare? What yeah. about my shampoo? Yeah. What about anything? Yeah. Hang on. We didn't have all of these industries, beauty industries, until the last generation or so. Yeah. What is the stuff that we used to use? Everybody would make their own things. Yeah. It's pretty basic have apple cider vinegar in your house, have some lemons in your house, have some um, baking soda in your house, and you can clean anything. Yeah, You exactly, can clean yeah, anything. Um, yeah. And so that's where I started. It's a lot studying. It's a lot self-taught. It's a lot like the, I want to do this differently. Yeah. Okay. Let me then go to study this. Yeah. And so I started making my own dishwasher products and then like we don't have a dishwasher like actually yeah, liquid this way okay and then telling people about it or writing a blog about it and they'd be like i don't have time to do that I i'm so busy i don't have time yeah but can you do it for me and so that started then okay i'm now selling that here there yeah. um really small scale um, but simply because people ask me, can you make that for me? Yeah. I started making my own toothpaste and my own deodorant. People were like, oh, can I try that? Oh, that's actually, can you make it for me? Okay. I'll and so that started growing in that way. And it wasn't, I'm going to put out a skincare range. It was more like, it what can I do for myself? Thing, Very. Yeah. Same with, same with anything really that happens. I end up basically doing something, getting excited about it, taking a picture, writing a Facebook post. Someone asks, can you make that for me? Um, and then I never say no. Is that and so I've got another job with it. Yeah, is that, I was about to say you've got another one as well because you, you make malas. As and well. that's exactly and that's the story say, of the malas. I made a mala for myself and I took okay. a picture of it. That was how the whole thing started. Okay. Um, and then someone said, oh, could you make one for me? It's like, sure i can make one for you really? um the process of making them is meditative because you're putting a knot after each the way that people who make malas often describe it is you're unknotting your mind by making a knot after every bead okay. so the, the mental knot becomes 
And yeah, so the physical knot that you're placing on, onto, exactly. the, onto the marrow itself. And um, I never meant for that to become part of the work I do. Um, but people would, after the first mala I made for myself and posted a picture of, I had 10 people saying, can you make one for me? I would like one with that stone. What stone is yeah, good for this, this and you this? Remember. And off I go on another research product, project. Yeah. And basically that's where it comes from. I now have a web shop that has pictures like of hundreds of malas I've made, yeah. which have all come about that way. Either it's one that I felt drawn to making because of this or this health benefit and I thought I might keep it for myself, yeah. but someone's already ordered it or someone asks me, I'm struggling with this, this and this, yeah. what would be the best stone? See, mine was different. I contacted you and said, I like lapis. Like, exactly. Yeah, I remember but that's rare you. almost. Although I do yeah. get those requests as well. Yeah. Could you make me one with these and these yeah. and these stones? And so sometimes it's from people knowing about stones. Um, and it's that whole conversation, oh, how can a stone help you yeah. in the way that food helps you? Yeah. Stones are grown in the earth. Yeah. And so they are very condensed nutrients, if you want. Yeah. If you look at Ayurved, Ayurved uses ground up yes. gemstones yeah, as a medicine. We, uh, we, you know, Santori Singhji does all that and he was, they were using pearls, they were grinding pearls, mm -hmm. they were grinding other things and you're like, is gemstones and they're like yeah but you need to use this multi and this and this and this and this happens you need this much amount of yes and they're like these all hold um properties that are beneficial but in the right quantities exactly too much bad for you yep. too little doesn't have enough sense so. yes and when someone asks for a certain stone and i ask <clears> them like okay is there a reason that you're asking for that particular one it will because that wouldn't actually be the best one for you yeah. because um Go with this. Yeah. Um, but so the whole idea, because I get that question very often, it's like, well, stones, if you put your, shouldn't you put your trust in Maharaj rather than in stones? Don't put your trust in stones, but Maharaj gave us food. Yes, exactly. That will heal certain things, plants that will heal certain things, and deeper into the earth, very condensed in its crust, gemstones that will well, heal Well, if somebody things. was to say that, then you go, well, this has to be soluble. Sadab exactly. Ganga has to be made out of dark, it has to be made out of wood. You know, you can't have it out of different elements. There's reasons for it. Exactly. Same yeah. that you would eat yeah. out of Sarbalobati. Yeah. Um, I use colloidal silver instead of antibiotics. It's yeah. because silver, silver has helps. antibiotic properties and yeah. we we use that until we came with penicillin and yeah. antibiotics. I'm allergic to penicillin, so that means Seven. I cannot use most antibiotics out there anyway. Mm. They'll kill me. So you start looking for other things. Yeah. Um, Stones and Mali being one of the things around that. I often get just asked, like, can you just not make me a necklace? Like, does it have to be 108 beads or does yeah. it have to... I work... I make them for Muslims, which yeah. is 99 beads. But I just want a necklace. I'm not making a necklace. Yeah. I'm making something a that rosary, yeah. I would prefer you to do Simran with. Um, yeah. Yeah. Not just to wear for the beauty of it. I have no control over it if someone orders it from the webshop, but I do think that you will kind of attract it into yourself. I, I've, I've rarely had those questions. Yeah. And when someone asks it, I just say, no, like I'm not making a necklace of this length or a bracelet. Yeah. There's plenty of other people that we'll will do, do that. that. You. you can go on into Etsy and find loads of people on that that will do that for you. But while 
I end up doing things because people ask, okay, that becomes another area to add on to it. I also have very much my boundaries around what I'm comfortable with. Um, I'm not comfortable with a big social media presence. um, And... That's good, because that's an extra. (laughs) You can find me on social media, but I'm not one who is going to study the algorithms or make reels. or It takes me outside of what I feel appropriate for myself. Um, I don't record my yoga classes. Like, they're on Zoom. And yes, I could build a whole library where people could just click and buy a yoga class. For me, that is something that is, even if it's online, that is in a... It's a, it's a personal, yeah. we, we meet each other there and that's where that teaching takes place. Yeah. So I do put a lot of boundaries around it, which means I'll never get rich from what I do yeah. and I'll always be putting in endless amounts of hours because I don't have an online course that you yeah. can buy or I refuse to do the bracelets or necklace thing side of things, yeah. which is where there's more money to be had. Um, and I don't want to do a play of algorithms and a play of reels and it's just something that doesn't sit right yeah um but i've walked away from so many things coming into sicky yeah. that i'm very comfortable with feeling for myself what isn't right and what is right yeah. and i know that if i step out of that because i've been there there yeah. is no end to it i've been in the place where there is no end to things yeah. i've been in the place where i was smoking drinking doing drugs I've been in those places. I've been in a place of deep depression. I I need to have boundaries, just like we have it at around the same, yeah. so that you don't go into those places, basically. Nice. But so, yes, you can find me on Instagram well, and Facebook, what, yeah. but there Please. is, there is your... little exciting things going on. No, no, it's there. not that. The, the, the reason why I ask for your social media is because people are going to be listening to this and they will have heard, obviously, talking about yoga, the closing of bones, how you came in sick, because there will be other people yeah. who are walking on that journey and going, I'm not sure, I don't know, I might want to talk to someone. You know, obviously with your homeopathic medicines, the Mars and things like that. And the reason I'm asking for your social media is so those people who have questions yeah. or those people who are interested, how can they contact exactly. you? How can they find you? They, so they can find me on Instagram and on Facebook. Um, there's not much exciting stuff happening there. <laughs> if that's what you'd want from um, no. following, there is no influencer stuff happening there at yeah. all. But um, people can find me. Yeah. My information is out there. Um, my website is where people will find most information. And that's, I am a writer in the sense that just as with my PhD and all of the research I did, I write a lot. So my pages have a lot of information, okay, yeah. which I know in our day and age, people need quick information. That's right. And with me, you kind of have to read through it yeah. or give me a call from there. But there is long explanations because I'm very old school in that. My PhD was 600 pages of small, small print to fit it into 600 pages because my supervisor said, you cannot, Exceed. for the life of me, go over that because it won't get acceptance. Like, okay, I'll just make my print really small. Um, but that's who I am. Yeah. As in, I'm comfortable with writing. So what's your website? Um, it's Shunia, so S-H-U-N-I-Y-A dash yoga yeah. Dot org. Dot org. With regards to anything we have said or talked about, is there anything you want to add? Anything you? Any questions you have for us? I think I've already spoken for so long. 
<laughs> no, that's fine. We, we, that, okay. That's a dangerous thing because I could go on for a half an hour about so, some silly already. detail again. So, that's, um, that's yeah. not no, as long as there isn't anything that you felt that you haven't had the opportunity to say or whatever. No, I don't think so. I think no. it covered probably. Um, no, that's fine. Well, probably it's, the questions you, you know, had. Like I said, from flawed and foolish over here. I just want to say the work that you're doing is fantastic. You're doing a load, load of stuff, but I think the greater audience needs to be more aware of it. For those people who have questions, those people who have an interest in it, at least they can come and reach out to you. I just want to say thank you very much for spending your time and us wasting your time uh, yeah. and having and being on our podcast and, and just on this on this talk, to be honest. Thank you so much for no, giving the opportunity to talk. No, it's not a problem. <laughs> Thank you very much. And I just want to say, you know, I just want to leave it with a fucking just say I'm really gra- grateful for everything. So, why would you go Kalsa? Why would you give Why would you give Right, now you need to tell us are there any bits you want us to edit out?